Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, page 809 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. It's a pleasure to see you this morning. Just a couple of things while you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to begin again reading from verses 9 through 11. I said last week, I want to remind you this week, I think um, that these next few sermons, not by dent of what's being said, by dent of principle how we approach them, they might be some of the most important sermons that we've heard in an awful long time. Um, I don't know if you can say that about sermons, but it just seems to strike me that way. Um, So I wanted to pass that along to you. And when we're done, if you have a question, I'd be happy to try to answer those for you when when we're through. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse nine. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. In fact, in the Greek it says, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Just to enhance that dynamic verse there justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you had the whole triune God at your disposal when it came to your salvation and sanctification. So, let's bow together and let's pray. Our gracious God, you are a merciful Father. Your unwavering love has watched over each of us in many entrusted ways in in just the course of this past week and this morning. Here we are, having been brought safely by you to this moment, a moment which is much more than instruction with a few helpful pointers. This is a moment in which we hear from you, the living God, as your word is proclaimed. So please, Father, work in all of us in such a way that we might believe you, and obey you, and treasure you above everyone and everything. And God, because I know myself utterly inadequate, feeble, and far too weak to do what is needed now, Father, please come and help me and help all of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, if you weren't here last week and you, and you didn't happen to listen to the sermon online I would just encourage you strongly to do that. It's pretty easy access because a lot of what we said last time will make even more sense this time. Nevertheless, oftentimes I give a little review and I think that's what I'm going to do this morning. So we were together last time and we came to these verses with a very, very important understanding that the context of these verses were, were not to be overlooked if we were going to understand these verses. And we said that it was important to remember principle over prejudice in order to protect all of us from um, our own potential biases when it comes to sins we might personally find more offensive than others, namely homosexuality, as opposed to sins we might find uh, more acceptable and respectable, namely greed or slander. So in order to avoid this, we noted, one, that whenever homosexuality is mentioned in the New Testament, it's always, always given with list of other sins, So that we understand by dent of principle that every sin of every size and every type makes a horrible mockery of the king of heaven. 
In other words, there are no uh, acceptable and respectable sins. God dealt with sin. God dealt with all sin by the slaughter of his son. Secondly, we said that the Christian's eyes are to be on ourselves as we consider this list of of sins in verses 9 and 10 because that's the context. Paul is calling the church that is strayed from holiness back to holiness. And because of this, he's not speaking to the world directly. So again, our examination is personal here. We do not have the right to be judgmental to the outside world. And that's 1 Corinthians 5 and 13. Which is why when we talk to that world, we lead with the gospel. And when we speak to the world, uh, uh, we are careful and, and thoughtful. So we don't go around saying, America's going to hell in a handbasket if this doesn't change. Especially if we say that and we like it. When Paul addressed Titus in another book, in a context that was just, in fact, more challenging than our context, he takes the time to tell Titus, to tell those Christians who are going to be living in that tremendously difficult context, Paul says this, Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them, Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show, listen carefully, perfect courtesy toward all people. Perfect manners towards all people. Loved ones, do you realize how quickly a church can become just an angry place to the watching world? So instead of a spirit of mission, we have an angry spirit of admonition, always complaining. You remember those two old guys in the Muppet Show? Some of you might not remember the Muppet Show, but they're always in the balcony, uh, Sattler and Waldorf, right? Remember them? Always complaining, never in the show, but always complaining about the show. Remember the sons of thunder in the gospel? Uh, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just, you know, get rid of all these people? And Jesus is like, guys, that's going to be a no. Play God, condemn the world, fire, get rid of them all, and then the world as we know it will be just another paradise. Not as long as we're in this flesh. No matter how many people we, quote, want to get rid of. Finally, in order to... uh, Avoid the false doctrine of perfectionism for the Christian. We were warned not to take this context out of context for getting gospel certainties. Because Paul, in that list in verse 9 and 10, and I hope your Bibles are open. In that list, he's not uh, giving a list of sins which if the Christian commits, it means we have somehow lost our salvation. Including homosexuality. There are no sins for the truly converted Christian. Grace is amazing. It's not ordinary. Grace is a gift from God. It is not a creation of man. Grace grips like steel. It doesn't weaken. But Paul rather is giving a list of sins which mark the outside world but should not mark the Christian church. Okay, Sins which mark the unconverted who continue to remain defiant. And there's the key. And unrepentant in those sins. Thus, Paul would have us examine ourselves in these things. 
Because as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he clearly recognizes that every single believer who has been rescued from sin's power and sin's penalty would be clearly seen as someone, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, in their context who, who, who didn't come to Jesus you know, simply because my life stinks. And I want my life to get better, and I read somewhere where Jesus can do that. Or, you know, my life is pretty boring, I need some purpose, will you give me some purpose? No, Paul writes to them to remind them that every person who has been rescued by that horrible bondage of sin by God himself, and here's the key, would know themselves just that, that they were rescued from that horrible bondage of sin by God himself. They would know themselves then as brand new creations. Hebrews 7.25, listen to it. Jesus lives forever, and he is able to save completely. Some translations to the uttermost. He, he leaves nothing out when Jesus saves people. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him. So Paul is establishing the God-given line of thinking that says, Christians are to live in a different and distinct way. But here's the good news. Because of God, in the gospel, we can live different and distinct ways. But here's some more news. In order that we won't try to define what those different and distinct ways are and what there are not, Paul graciously gives us a list. Not an exhaustive list of sins, but a list nonetheless. And that takes us to our first point, the sins we must avoid. And you can see them there, second part of 9 and verse 10. And these are the kinds of sins that have always characterized, marked the life of the ungodly in the world. And therefore, these are the kind of sins that ought to never characterize the godly in the church. And, in, and, you know, even though we're thousands of miles from Corinth and thousands of years removed from that context, when you look at that list, you're going to realize human nature, does n- <laughs> it hasn't changed. I mean, those are the same things people deal with now. And that's why you want to encourage your friends to read the Bible because the Bible is so amazingly relevant. Now, I don't want to set up camp on these sins. It's too hard, but we need to go through them. And it's going to take a little bit of time. So bear with me. So number one, the sexually immoral or the old English uh, fornication. Fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are those who run over the limits of God's beautiful plan for sexual fulfillment. Fornication is then having a sexual relationship with another person, mental or physical, outside the bonds of marriage. So, for example, fornication in relation to premarital sex. Come on. This is what we hear. Are you kidding? How are people going to really know if it's right if they don't, you know, No. So what the Bible says is wicked, society believes is needed or fine. Fornication takes one of the most incredible gifts and experiences from God that a man or a woman can enjoy in the context of marriage and makes a mess of it. And people get hurt and some get diseases, but far worse, God is disobeyed. And by the way, please don't think that it's only a young person problem. Uh, The online newspaper, The Guardian, quoting a recent study from the Center for Disease Control, says the fastest growing age group where sexually transmitted diseases are being found are, ready for this, senior citizens, those over the age of 50 
five. It's not a young people problem. It's an old people problem. Secondly, adulterers. I, and this is a man or a woman or a young person who breaks the first and second commandment. And what they do is they create another God in their heads or with their hands. And they do this to make the worship of God fit their taste, fit their time, and fit their circumstance. They then, in doing this, cease to obey the one true God who has clearly spoken in the world that he's made and the son who he has sent and in his word, the Bible. And so adulterers would be those who have a purely personal, subjective view of the God they worship. And this God that they worship is one who indulges them but never makes any demands from them. And you hear it all the time. People say, I I prayed about it and it's okay. Even if what they prayed about and they said was okay was a direct violation of the revealed will of God in the scriptures. Third, adulterers. And these are those who destroy the God-given relationship between a husband and a wife in which he or she breaks the marriage vow. In other words, when a sexual relationship has taken place with a man other than your husband or a woman other than your wife, you've broken the bonds of holy matrimony and God calls this adultery. And of course, Jesus said that if you lust after a woman and we can include a man in that, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. And adulterers who do not repent of this sin, asking God to save and forgive them through Jesus Christ, adulterers who think it's just fine, they do not inherit the kingdom of God. This week in my normal readings, I came across an article in the New York Times. It had the title, When the Best Sex is Extramarital. So I had to read it. (laughs) And so the article was focused on a particular woman who was involved in, in an adulterous relationship. And the article was given credence to go ahead, but just be careful in that type of thing. But here's the part I wanted to read to you. Because when I read this, and I'm not trying to be silly, it it shocked me. It actually kind of scared me. This is what it says. One day, the married Cynthia arrived at work to learn that Neil, Neil, her secret lover, had collapsed on the treadmill during his morning run and died of a heart attack. And since this was a secret relationship, she had to hide her grief. It goes on. Cynthia meets up with a therapist who listened to her story and writes. Now, this is a therapist. The more I heard about Neil, the less I liked him. He was a compulsive womanizer. And you see, please forgive me. The article, in the article, it was just the sex that she missed. Nothing about heartfelt love. Nothing about Long walks and slow romance and firm commitment and, and gazing at your wife's beauty and, and, and admiring your husband's handsome face. Nothing but, gosh, it's just so good to be, to, to be with you this way right now. And typically what you'll hear in a sermon is, young people, I want you to pay attention. But listen, now it's young people and older people. I want you to pay attention. The sexual union in the context of marriage is a mental and physical and spiritual extravaganza. It's great in that context. It's supposed to be. 
Outside of that context, it's horrible. So I read the article, and most of you know that when you read articles, now people have a whole lot to say, comments, and so I was reading some of the comments, and this is what one said. I liked it. It is said that a great lover is not someone who can conquer thousands of men and women, but one who can win over the same woman or the same man over and over again a thousand times. An infinitely more difficult task. No wonder so many of us fail. Fourth, male prostitutes or homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. So clearly these are sins. Sins which need to be atoned for. Sins which can be atoned for by way of God's grace in Jesus. And yet clearly then a Christian has the potential to struggle with these sins until their last breath. Just like every Christian will struggle with all kinds of sins until our last breath. Hence the list. So the first word in the Greek translated male prostitutes, it gives the idea of a feminine male who offers himself to other men. So this is kind of like the passive type person in a homosexual relationship. The second word is the word for the aggressor. NIV translate the homosexual offender. In the Latin Vulgate, it's catamites and sodomites, if that helps you. And to be honest, Paul's chosen words here say, say nothing with those who have a homosexual tendency. These are, are the more deviant behavior in that realm. And so what Paul is simply saying is that those who have a way of life, who remain unrepentant in, in this type of sin, scorn the commands of the king, and they will not inherit the kingdom. So we're not condoning this, we're not blessing this, we're not trying to create new doctrine around what the Bible calls sin. Homosexuality is not a condition, it's a sin, it's not an alternative lifestyle really, but a sin. And please remember we are examining ourselves here, we are not judging the world. Paul teaches us that we lead with proclamation and not legislation, because God's the only one that can save people from that kind of stuff. Thieves. These are those who make a way of life taking that which doesn't belong to them. Shoplifters. Larceny. Poaching. Embezzling. Illegal online activity. Tax evasion. Thieves. The greedy. And the word that Paul uses is a unique word. It's very intense. This is the individual who's never satisfied with what they have. They're always reaching, always grabbing for more, and thus they will manipulate anyone or anything aggressively to get what they thirst for. So, so whether it's a misapplied frugalness or, or a, a savage desire for more, both exalted in our culture, you have one group who live under the idea that there's never going to be enough, hence we hoard or we parcel out with bits and pieces or we take advantage of the system to, to get what we think have coming to us. Or the other group who work and work and work and work and some might even cheat because they want more and more. And I know I've told you this before. Traditionally in the arts and the theater, whenever you have a picture of a greedy person, usually they are excessively portly or they are excessively thinly and or sickly. Why is that? Well, one are so afraid that they won't have enough and others are never satisfied with enough. And the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
Proverbs 26, don't eat with stingy people. Don't eat with greedy people. Proverbs 23, 6 and 7. He's the kind of person who's always thinking about the cost. You can't go three minutes into a conversation when it's not about money or taxes or 401k and all that stuff. Drunkards. This is someone who does not control their drinking. Uncontrolled drinking. Not uncontrollable drinking because there is no such thing really ultimately as uncontrollable drinking. Think it out. Slanderers. Those who wound by words. Those who injure people's reputation by uh, denigrating them, demeaning them with abusive insults and typically they're in groups of one or two or three or four and it's never in front of the individual who they slander and God does not consider this sin to be mild or small. Because it comes from a heart of hate. It's a murderous heart. And this is just me. I was thinking that I'd probably much rather have a meal with a homosexual than I would a meal with a slanderer. That's just me. They cause misery and pain and despair in the lives of those they attack by their words that wound. And finally, thank God, finally, swindlers. <laughs> those who take unfair advantage of others. Confidence men, false advertisers, those who think to buy low and to sell high is always the right way to go no matter what. Swindlers. And as you look at that list, surely at the close of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century, we've turned many of those dreadful sins into conditions. Not sins which need to be atoned for, but conditions we need help in. So then, this is what happens. The cross of Christ is simply uh, quite a nice gesture, but nothing really more. It's nice to know that someone's out there sacrificing, but that's about it. So you won't think my weekly readings are creepy. I read something else. I just came across it by accident. It's a hymn. The hymn is a very, very old hymn. It's stricken, smitten, and afflicted. This is verse 3. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. At the cross, we view its nature rightly. Here, its guilt we can estimate. That's our first point. I'm glad we're done. The sins we must avoid. Verse 9, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then there's your list. Number two, final point, the change we must embrace. And that's verse 11. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So again, now listen carefully. When Paul enters Corinth, a sex-crazed, greedy, and highly populated city, his strategy is not to try to change the culture by legislation. But immediately he begins proclamation. And Paul was so clearly convinced that there is in the gospel then great power. Power to change people's lives. I mean, isn't that what Paul said in Romans 1.16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And this saving, as you can see in these verse, verses, verse 11, is far more than just a one-shot deal. But a power from the gospel 
to finally do what in our pre-Christian life we were unable to do, namely change our wicked behavior. So, so his setup is fantastic, okay? Corinth is a tremendously wicked city. That's the context. The Roman emperor at the time is Nero. He's a homosexual. He had two weddings, one to a young boy named Sporus, who he had castrated after the a wedding, nice gift, and to another man named Pythagoras, whom he called his husband. So you have the king who's wicked. You have a culture that is wicked. Apparently, no hope for conversion, no hope for people to live holy lives. Uh, our kids are done. No way they can live for Christ in that kind of environment. We better do something. We better set some laws on the books. Does that sound familiar? That should some of us sound very familiar. Question, what did Paul do in light of this uh, wicked culture and wicked king? Answer, he did what Christ told him to do. He proclaimed the gospel and he established, established the church. Question, what did God do? Well, he saved people. Question, what else did God do? Answer, well, remember that horrible catalog of sins that marked the Christian's former entire way of life? You remember that list? Well, then look at verse 11. This is one of the most tremendous verses in all of the New Testament. And that is what some of you were. That's what the gospel does. And the proof of Christianity then lies in the power to change people. Because only the power of Jesus Christ can take a wicked man or a wicked woman that is lost to shame and sin and make them sons and daughters of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Only Christ can liberate them, transform them, and set them free. You know, a nice home, new clothes, fresh supplies are good. But they're not the gospel. They're not the highest good. And they might be a byproduct of the gospel, but they're not the gospel. And they have no inherent power to change anyone. So no man can change themselves. No woman can change herself. Only Jesus can change them. And apparently Jesus did that in Corinth. Verse 11, do you see it there? And that was what some of you were. And so Paul reminds them, what was formerly impossible for you to do? To stop doing, I should say, slander, greed, sexual sins. Now because of Jesus Christ, it's possible for you to do. Isn't that good news? So on one level, the Christian is more broken than we realize. We, we are, uh, have more sin than we realize. And the closer we get to the holiness of God, the more we are confronted with our imperfections. We understand that. And yet God says, verse 11, that is, verse 9b and 10, that wicked list, that is what some of you were. In other words, and listen very carefully, God is not calling the Christian to live in a way that we cannot, in some measure, do right now. And how wonderful is that? I mean, I don't want to be greedy. I, I don't want to be a slanderer. I want sexual purity, mental and physical. Do you like the way your conscience just rips you to shreds when you sin? I don't. Do you, do you like the thought of Christ having to bleed and die because of our petty sins? I don't. Do you like displeasing God? I don't. Does it break your heart and at the same time scare the dickens out of you when you sin? Would to God it be more in my life? I have an ongoing relationship with an individual who was the first teen in the whole state of Texas who was sent to prison as a drug user and drug dealer. First one. 
Guess what? He met Christ. Christ changed him. And right now he is a wonderful servant. And I'm going to call him one of my mentors in Christ. I have another friend, pre-Christ, two failed marriages, five kids from three ladies. With Christ, one wife, five kids, holy life. Holy life. So here's the thing. Don't buy into the spirit of the age that I would say to you a lot of Christianity has bought into. So we offer people salvation. They, quote, get saved, but then they have to limp through life the rest of their life. So, so as a result of your background, you'll always be affected by the way your mom and dad raised you and treated you. You'll always be affected the way you were brought up. Your financial situation. Your wicked, wicked past. Listen, if we are a new creation, and the Christian is, then we are a new creation. I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. Like about hmm, six years ago, my dad called me, and he was apologizing for the way that he raised me. Midstream through that conversation, I said to him in a nice way, be quiet. He bought into some of this stuff. He wasn't the perfect dad. Who is the perfect dad? I said, Dad, you were fantastic to me. I don't know who sold you that bill of goods, but trash it. You were just fine. You did the best that you could. And I love you. Okay. Where is the strength behind all that change? Well, look at your Bible. It began with the proclaiming of the gospel. People being confronted with their need of a Savior because of their sin. We tell them the bad news of their condition and the good news of God's provision. And loved ones, they were converted. And their entire life began to change. That is what some of you were. And you see, if we don't do that, that way, then what you could create in any context, especially in a church, you can simply have religious people who come to church a few weeks a month. They like the music. They tolerate the preaching. They like potlucks. They do a few good deeds every once in a while. But they're not truly converted. But when the gospel is fully proclaimed and when someone honestly receives it, then God's power comes down and sets into motion this incredible, incredible transformation. So then Paul reminds them what you were And what you are, Christian, are now two entirely different things. Do you see it there, verse 12? How come? Excuse me, verse 11. Yeah, how come? You were washed. Well, that's clearly a reference to baptism. Baptism when a Christian goes public with Christ, if you would. Baptism when a Christian makes a public stance that their past has been that. Now, past. Baptism, not the washing away of sins by baptism, but the washing away of sins that's being pictured in baptism. Paul goes on, and you were sanctified. Sanctified, a tremendously important word. You were set aside by God. When you receive Christ, your entire life now is set aside for your master's use. Hagios is the Greek word. It is you have been declared sacred. 
That's what happened to you when you became a Christian. Declared sacred. And now the Spirit's power is at work in you in such a way that you can now say yes to what is right and no to what is wrong. Isn't that wonderful? Power to do that finally? You were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, justification. You know the song, clean before God I stand in him, not one blemish does in me, not one blemish does he see. It's beautiful. Well, how did all that happen? At the cross. At the cross, verse 11b, by the will and power of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What Paul is saying, the whole strength behind the power to live in a way to please God actually comes from God. That's where the power is. And it comes through the gospel. So you have God the Father, you have God the Spirit, And God the Son at your disposal in your quest to live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, loved ones, that'll do. (laughs) That'll do. There you have it. New life given. That's the title. New life given. New life lived. So Paul is telling them, don't go back to your old life because you weren't saved for that. You were saved from that. God is working in you, sister and brother, so work it, (laughs) sister and brother. And that's why we can't be judgmental to the non-Christian world. We should pity them. They don't have that kind of power. They have no savior, no hope, no king. So no wonder they do what they do. So we don't spew out condemnations. We spew out proclamation, the need for Jesus Christ. Paul gave it in Corinth, we should give it in Cohasset. Okay, we need to take communion. Let me just say one last thing. A very long time ago, I was taught this. A wonderful person told me this. Joe, be terribly ruthless with your own sin. Joe, be incredibly patient and forgiving with the sins of others. And Joe, be absolutely convinced that where your sin abounds... God's grace, much more abounds. Jump on that, Joe, because you're going to need it when you get older. And Joe, remember that your old life, what you were, is no longer what you are. At the close of the second service, I said something. I'm going to say it again. In light of all that, who would not Who would not want to be a Christian? Think of it. Who would not want to be a Christian? Let's bow together, please. Thank you for your good attention this morning. If those who will be serving communion would come forward. Our gracious God, we give glory to your name and thank you for your great care for us. How you watch over us. How the gospel is true power. That the very source of our ability to change does not come from us. How could it? It comes through the saving work of Christ at Calvary's cross. Please work it in all of us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. Amen.